Okay, if you guys will allow me, I'll just pray on our behalf. Thank you, Father, that uh, you're here with us. Thank you, Lord, that you're the defender of our life, that you defend us against the voice of accusation, that you defend us against the, the death that's in this world. Lord, I just thank you that uh, your spirit is dwelling inside of us and that that spirit could give us eyes to uh, understand what it means to be justified, that uh, we could see clearly what justification is all about and we could start to find justification working in our hearts, working on our behalf, creating within us a blameless heart. Thank you, Father, that it's your good pleasure to form within us a blameless heart. Thank you, Father, that it's your good pleasure to manifest your truth inside of us. Amen. Glory to God. Um, if you hadn't seen last week's message from Maurice, go and watch it. The whiteboard. I love the whiteboard. All the words on the whiteboard were really nice. I think I took a picture of it, and I thought that was really good. But go and listen to it. It's on YouTube. Um, it's also on the website. And, uh, man, it'll trigger some things in you. And it, it triggered some things in me about justification and what justification actually is. And I thought that, hey, guys, my goodness. Hallelujah. Good to see you guys. It triggered some thoughts in me about justification and, and what it's all about. And so I, I thought it'd be good just to, to go through them and, and, and share them. I know for so long in my own life, so many of these things like justification of life, forgiveness of sin, all these different phrases in the Bible, um, they were, I didn't know it at the time, but I realize now they were kind of like cliches to me where I read them and they sound good. And I know I should be happy about them. But if somebody put a microphone in front of my mouth and said, what is the justification of life? What's it about? Who justifies you? What are you justified from? I realized I would struggle to be able to answer those questions, right? And I, and I see through the course of my life that I've grown in my understanding of what these powerful phrases are, because I promise you they were not cliches to the early church. When they said these things, there was deep meaning to them. They weren't just saying them like it's a slogan that's nice to say, right? Like we have slogans that are, are nice to say. God helps those who help themselves, right? We have slogans. Listen, that's not in the Bible. I don't know if you realize that. God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. God helps those who can't help themselves. He's the good Samaritan, right? He helps those that are left for dead on the side of the road that can't help themselves, <laughs> right? And so I've, I've had this growth in my understanding of what these terms meant. I mean, first of all, I realized we're not justified by our works. And there was great relief in that. Oh, hallelujah. Right? God's not expecting me to justify myself by my works. But then, what does it mean to be justified by faith? Which was the alternative to that. Who, what is it that justifies me, and what am I being justified from? I realized I had a very uh, elementary understanding of that, that worked against those, the power of those things manifesting in my heart. So I just want to run through the justification of life, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 5. The justification that comes from life. What is that all about? Right? And so we're going to read the definition of, of justification from the Greek. And we'll look at the word justification. This is the, the definition. An equitable deed. An equitable deed. By implication, a statute or decision. Judgment, like a decree. 
justification, ordinance, righteousness. It's a righteous act or deed. So it's, it's something that someone would come and do, and it's a righteous thing that they did. It's a judgment that someone would come and issue, and it seemed to be a righteous judgment that they came and issued. And so it's a righteous act or deed. It comes from the root word that's translated justified in our English language in the Bible. It comes from the root word that we see as justified. And that word means, this is interesting, that word means to render, that is, show our regard as just or innocent. 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 When I started seeing that, that really challenged my thinking. Right? How could I be seen as innocent? Because my whole concept was I'd be pardoned, right? which means I was guilty. And then I was pardoned from my guilt. Well, if you're innocent, then that means that somebody says not guilty. That's a strange concept for me, right? And it, it, it messed with my theology because I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around how that fit with my understanding because I knew I was guilty of walking out of the way. I knew I was guilty of having, of having tried to serve myself with life instead of resting in God to serve me with life, I knew that was true. So my whole concept of justification was built upon the fact that God was the one that was judging me, that God was the one that was against me, and now I can be justified by faith, meaning that I would be justified to God. You're not justified to God, you're justified by God. He's the one that comes and defends you from the accusation. The devil's the one that's called the accuser. God isn't the accuser. And my whole idea of justification was that God's the one that's accusing me. And now he's done something that if I can believe, then he'll no longer be accusing me. But what I realize is God come to judge me innocent of the accusation of the evil one. He come to do something to where my heart could be blameless or to where I could be protected from the accusation of the evil one. And so justification to be justified, it means to render that is, show our regard to show someone or prove someone to be innocent, to be righteous, to render someone righteous or such as he ought to be, to show, exhibit, events one to be righteous, such as he is, and wishes himself to be considered, to declare, pronounce, one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. Those are the Greek definitions of justification, every single one of them, from justification and justified. If you like looking in the scriptures, you can look up those Greek words and you can find them yourself. Some people will ask me what app I use. I like eSword. Um, and you can get three different Greek lexicons on eSword. Now listen, before mankind could do anything right or wrong, see, we tend to judge God based on whether we did right or wrong. But God had thoughts before mankind did anything right or wrong. He made decisions about mankind and what he thought of them before we did anything right or wrong. That's the election of grace that Paul talks about in Romans 9. That before Jacob and Esau were born, before they could do anything right or wrong, so that God could demonstrate that it was never going to be by our works. It was never going to be by us doing something right or wrong that he would love us. Right? So before mankind could even do anything right or wrong, this messes people up. But God judged mankind worthy of eternal life before we could ever do anything right or wrong. That's why it says he got down on one knee and blessed Adam. That word blessed in the Hebrew means to barak. 
Barak in the Hebrew means to get down on one knee in adoration of someone else. So before mankind could do anything right or wrong, God decided what he felt about us. And when he saw us, he saw himself in his face. He saw uh, himself in our face. And what he said was, these guys are flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. These guys are my kind. And if they're my kind, then they're worthy of my life. That's the whole point there. And so he judged that before we could do anything right or wrong. And so you might ask God to show you, what, is it that, what does it look like to think about myself outside of right and wrong? Because that's how he thinks of you, outside of right or wrong. That doesn't mean he doesn't recognize if the fruit of death is manifesting in your life. But his thoughts of you aren't determined by the fruit of death he sees manifesting in your life. He already decided what he thought about you before you could ever do anything right or wrong. He already did. That's why he blessed Adam. So justification is that God did a righteous thing when he gifted the world his life. That's what justification is. When it talks about a righteous deed being done, God's the one that did a righteous deed. And the righteous thing God did was he gifted us his life. He gifted the world his life, and he gifted the world his life through Jesus. That's why it says, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. What does it mean that the light that was in Jesus is the light of men? What it means is that that light that manifested in the Son of Man, Jesus, inside of his human flesh, even after sin and death had come upon him, it means that life declares that God is the Father of mankind. That's what it says. The question is, isn't whether God is the Father of mankind. The question is, will we call him Father? That's the question. Because God can't force you to call upon his name. He can't force you to call him father. You can be one of the children of disobedience where you refuse to be persuaded that he's your father. You refuse to be persuaded that he's drawn near to you to be good to you, to serve you with his life, right? You could certainly do that. And so God did a righteous deed by gifting the world his life through Jesus. And that's what justification is all about. That's why it's called the justification of life. Justification is about God manifesting his life inside of the flesh of Jesus, inside of human flesh, so that he could declare mankind innocent from the accusation of the evil one. That's what it's all about. It's about him coming and standing next to us while we're being attacked by the accuser of the brethren, while we're being attacked by the serpent, and him justifying us from the accusation. That's what he's busy with, with justification. Justification is about God advocating for mankind against the death that's in the world. That's what justification is all about. If you, you could see a great picture of justification in the Gospel of John, where the Pharisees were accusing the woman caught in the act of adultery. And they were saying, such should be stoned. There was the condemnation of death reigning over her head. Death was standing opposed to her. Death was standing against her. It was accusing her. It was uncovering her nakedness. She was thrown down in the midst of the temple naked, her shame exposed. Well, who was the one accusing her? Was it Jesus or was it the Pharisees? Well, didn't Jesus tell the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil? Well, here's a woman dead in sin. And the Pharisees thought God was the one that condemned her. But it wasn't God that was condemning her to death. It was the serpent because the Pharisees were the one condemning her. I don't know if we remember, but the Gospel of John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the word was face to face with God. And the word was God. So there's Jesus as God standing in the midst of the temple. And he didn't accuse the woman. In fact, he came and stood next to her and defended her. That's a picture of justification. He stood on her behalf against, he advocated for her against the sentence of death that was standing against her. And he removed the accusation. He removed it all. And so justification is about God advocating for mankind against the death that's in the world. Right? He wants to create within us a blameless heart, a heart that doesn't accuse us. And the way he creates within us a blameless heart is he comes and gifts us his life. That's how he does it. And we're going to get into how all that works. And what he wants to do is he wants to prove that what he said about mankind when he called them his children is true. He wants to prove that it's true. You know, when God called Abraham the father of many nations, he did not look like the father of many nations. I mean, his, he had no heir. And so when God justified Abraham, what it means is he proved that what he said about Abraham being the father of many nations was true. Well, we know God called mankind his children because the scripture says Adam, the son of God. But Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he didn't look like the son of God. He was filled with death. His body was clothed in death. And so justification is about God proving that what he said about mankind being his children is true. So that all those who believe, right? The way he proves that what he said about us being his children is true is he gifts us his life. That's how he proves what he said is true. Because if you have the life of God, then it's the evidence that you're his child. I mean, your little girl there. Is that, is that your little girl? Yeah, well, the life that she has has come forth from your seed. See evidence that she's yours. It's the same way with God. And so God called mankind his children. But now death was standing against us, appearing as his children. And death was making an accusation against mankind, saying that we weren't his children. Well, God comes as our advocate to stand against the death, to prove that what he said about us being his children is true. The way he proves that it's true is he gifts us with his life so that everybody who wants his life as a free gift can overcome the death that's in the world, overcome the death that got it right to get in our bodies and appear as the sons and daughters of God. That's what justification is all about. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober. Just so you guys know, that's not talking about alcohol. I mean, it's also good not to drink alcohol. When it says be sober there, it's not talking about not drinking a beer. It's talking about being sober-minded, right? It's talking about being aware of the devices of the serpent. It's talking about having eyes to see how the serpent tempts us and what he uses to tempt us, how he tries to devour us. That's what it's talking about. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. So I don't know, whatever word you like to use for the serpent, you can call him that old dragon, you can call him the devil, you could call him Satan, you could call him the accuser, you could call him the adversary, whatever you like to call him, the thing that the serpent uses to try to devour us is death. He uses death to stand against mankind. It was the condemnation of death that was standing against the woman caught in the act of adultery. And so the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking those he can take from rest. 
That's what it means to devour them. He tries to take us from rest. And the way that he tries to take us from rest is by pointing at all the death and the tribulation and the lack in the world. And he uses the death that we see in the world. He uses the tribulation we see in the world. He uses all the lack we see in the world to try and uncover our nakedness and really to dress God down in our eyes, to undress God. He doesn't just want to uncover our nakedness, but he wants to do something in our hearts to convince us of God's nakedness. Nakedness means inability, an inability to clothe yourself with life. And so the serpent points at the death in the world, and he uses that to accuse us and tell us, if you really are the children of God, then clothe yourself with life. And then he comes and he accuses God also. If God really is your father, then how come you're not clothed in life? Look at all this death. Look at all this tribulation. Look at all the lack you see everywhere. Where's your God now? Any of you ever had that thought? Where's your God now? When did you have that thought? When things were going good? No. You know, you notice how you always think God's there when things are going good. Because there's something in the human heart that knows in God is only light and life. And so if we see life or we think life is present with us, we see it as a sign. God must be there. Hallelujah. That's why look how blessed I am. Why do you think we even say that? The reason why we hear the voice, where's your God now, when things are going wrong, because that's when the serpent is trying to devour us. He's pointing at all the things going wrong, and he's trying to use it as evidence against us and against God. Why do you think Jesus heard, where's your God now? When did Jesus hear, where's your God now? When he was nailed to a cross and all the death in the world had come upon him. And that's a perfect picture of the devil roaming around like a lion, roaring, seeking whom he may devour. He was roaring against Jesus. He was seeking to devour Jesus. He was trying to take Jesus from rest. And the way he was trying to take Jesus from rest is he was pointing at the death that come upon him at the cross. And he was using that death to try to uncover Jesus's nakedness and to undress God in his sight, to accuse God. He was trying to convince Jesus that this death is a sign that God is not your father. Because if God's your father, how come all this death, bro? I mean, it makes sense to us. All you guys are like, yeah. It makes sense to us. We inherently know that if God's there, he only has light in life. Therefore, we should see light in life. So what gives? That's when the confusion comes. That's how he devours you. Paul prayed that we would no longer be ignorant of the devices of the serpent. And he talked about how the serpent took Eve from rest. Guys, in the church, I've been in the church my whole life, I've realized it's just, just been the last five years that I even understand what the devil does to try to take me from rest and how he uses the death. And he doesn't just use the death, he convinces me that the death has come by the hand of God. He convinces me that the death has come by God's disappointment with me because of my sin. So he doesn't just get it right to bring, he's the one that brought death into the earth. He's the one that deceived Adam. He's the one that was a murderer from the beginning. So he got it right to manifest death in the earth and manifest death in me. And then every time it flared up like a pimple, he come and said, it's because of God. Where's God now? If you really are his child, how come? If he really is your father, where is he? You see how that works? I'm giving you his playbook. You know, when they, it, it, I know I, I just heard from a lot of ladies, they hate football analogies. 
because they don't know football. But I don't know, maybe here in Louisiana, the ladies know football also. <laughs> but if you don't, I'm sorry. But several years ago, there was a big gripe over one of the football teams recording the practices of the other team before the Super Bowl. And the gripe was they knew all the plays. And if they knew all the plays, then that would make the game easier for them. Well, I just told you the serpent's playbook. I just told you the only thing he has to mess with you so that you could have his playbook right out in front of your face. And you could start to discern the voice of the accuser when it comes to you. You could start to see where it's coming from. You could start to see what he's using. And then what will happen is that will make it easier for you to start to hear the voice of the Father right in the midst of that, right? You'll start to see Jesus standing with you. Neither do I condemn you. And you'll start to see Jesus standing there, God with you as your advocate, removing the death or defending your heart against the death you see in your life. Hallelujah. Mm. The Amplified Bible says it this way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the Amplified Bible says that God put eternity in the hearts of mankind. It says he put eternity in the hearts of mankind. You know what it means that he put eternity in our hearts is he judged us worthy of possessing his eternal life, so he put something in us where we desire eternal life. We desire an incorruptible life. We desire to have a life that there's no lack in. We desire to have a life that's so much that even should it encounter lack, it will even swallow the lack. We desire to have the kind of life that even should tribulation come against it, that kind of life will stand up and have conquered, overcome the tribulation. That's what it means that he put eternity in our hearts. We long for a life that has no lack in it. And so even if we aren't aware of this dynamic, on a subconscious level, we all know something's not right if life isn't present with us. Don't we? Did anybody have to teach you that you should, you should feel lack if life isn't there? Or did you just feel it? I mean, they teach us how to do math. They teach us English. They teach us how to break up the sentence structure. They teach us how to drive. They teach us how to vote. They teach us how to work the Internet. Did anybody have to teach you something's wrong if you lack something you need it for life? Or did it just happen inside of you? Why did it happen inside of you? Where does that come from? That knowing that it's not right if you don't have what you need to have life. Why do you think we get upset anytime we think we don't have something we need to partake of life? Why do you think that happens inside of us? Because eternity is in our hearts. And we know we were made for a life that has no lack. And every time we see lack in our lives or around us, it tries to communicate to something to us. It tries to tell us that this isn't right. Something's amiss. You are not in the state you ought to be in. You were created to be in a state of life. And look at this death in your life. I know we, we, we've used poor language to express why little kids can fight over toys. It's a real simple thing, and it ain't because they're evil. Little kids possess the ability to feel lack. And if they see another child that has a toy, and that child is having fun with that toy, do you know what they immediately think? I don't have what I need to experience joy. And that's why they want to take the toy from the other child. They're not even two years old yet, yet something is working in them where they realize the feeling of lack isn't right. 
And when they feel that lack, they try to do something to satisfy it. We inherently know we were created to partake of life. And the moment we think we don't have what we need to partake of life, like it sends off a siren. It's like danger, danger, danger. Smoke starts coming out of our ears. Like we start malfunctioning the moment. I mean, look at the gas prices. We'll just use that. Any of you feel lack over the gas prices? Does someone have to tell you you should feel lack or do you just feel it? And why do you feel the lack? Because you think the gas prices are a sign you don't have what you need to partake of a good life. That's why. Because inside yourself, you knew you created to have a life that has no lack. And this oil price is trying to tell you you lack what you need. You lack what you need. You don't have what you need. And we're like, yes, it's true. That's the voice of accusation in the earth. That's the voice of the serpent using the corruption and the death that's in this earth to try to speak to us, to try to take us from rest, to try to fill our minds with a corruptible life, to try to fill our minds with the corruption in the earth because he wants to fill us with lack. No one had to teach us not to like tribulation. <laughs> no one had to teach us not to like it. Like there wasn't a class at the beginning of this whole conflict between Russia and Ukraine where they sat us all down and said, you should not like this conflict. We all know that it isn't right when people are dying. Why? It's inherent in us. God has put eternity in the hearts of all people. The, I, I told this example in the Bible study, and it's a powerful example, but hey, we grew up in Louisiana. We all had shotguns. Sportsman's paradise, right? You go hunting. And my friend had thousands of acres of deer hunting land in Mississippi. And when we were 13, 14 years old, a couple times a year, we would go to this, this land and we'd have four four wheelers and we'd have our shotguns and we'd travel all over the land with our shotguns and there's cows and everything all over the land. And we wouldn't shoot the cows, right? But if there were deer, we could have some deer. You know what I'm saying? Well, this one particular day, rolling hills, man, it's, it's beautiful, streams. This one particular day when we're out on our four wheelers, with the shotguns, we come across this little armadillo. And we got off our, our four-wheelers and we started chasing that armadillo with the shotguns. And that armadillo ran into a little wooded area where it thought it could find cover. And it ran into this corner that looked like there was a hole that it could go into. But it wasn't a hole, it was just underneath these roots. And so it was blocked in. And there, all five of us were standing with our shotguns. The strangest thing happened in that moment. That little armadillo, we hadn't pulled any triggers. We hadn't done anything. That little armadillo started squealing. And it had a profound effect on all of us. Because even that little armadillo knew something was wrong with death. Nobody had to teach that armadillo that it, it's good to have life. And it's not good not to have life. That little armadillo was feeling something on the inside that its life was going to be taken. And it knew inherently something's wrong. And it started squealing. Now listen, we couldn't shoot that armadillo. It's one thing you shoot an animal and after it squeals, right? You already shot it. And you kind of know that's coming. And so, you, you know, then you put the animal out of its misery. But it was weird that this armadillo squealed before we shot it because it hadn't felt any pain yet. 
And you see, that did something inside of our hearts because we immediately like thought, this little thing is like scared senseless. And none of us could bring ourselves to shoot that armadillo. And looking back on it now, I think it's because we all identified with that armadillo. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation groans in travail, desiring for the manifestation of the sons of God. And then he goes on to say, to wit the redemption of our bodies, meaning all of creation groans in travail, desiring to see life manifest in this earth and for all of death to be swallowed up. We're all groaning in travail, desiring that. And all of a sudden in this place, it was like that little armadillo wanted life. Well, I want life. And that little armadillo knew that something's not right if, death, if it's going to die. Something's missing. Something's amiss. I know what that feels like. And immediately I felt compassion for that little armadillo. And what's funny is I, I thought surely one of my friends will shoot the armadillo. You know? Because, I mean, when you hunt, you, there's like a disconnect. You're not thinking of it like that. But we weren't going to eat that armadillo. And so all of us were like, we ain't going to shoot that armadillo. And we let that thing go. It's taken me my whole life to realize what was going on there. But any time we encounter death and tribulation and lack in the earth, that tribulation tries to testify to our hearts that we aren't as we ought to be. Something's amiss. We're supposed to have life, and now we don't. And that's what was going on in that little armadillo. That death that surrounded it, that tribulation, was telling it that it was not as it ought to be and that something was amiss. And so it started squealing. Well, it's the same way with human beings. We squeal all the time. And the, when, when we squeal is when we encounter the death and the tribulation and the lack that's in the earth. And the reason why it bothers us so much is because those things speak a silent word. And the silent word they speak to us is that we're not as we ought to be. We know we're supposed to have life. Well, if these things are contrary to life and they're present here, then we're not as we ought to be. Justification is about God defending our hearts from that. And so justification is about God working innocence in our hearts. And the way he works innocence in our hearts against that accusation that tells us we're not as we ought to be, the way he works that innocence in us is he gifts us his life. What he does is he bestows his love on us by manifesting his life in the body of Jesus' resurrection. That's how he does it. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John's talking about God pouring out of himself his life inside of the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's why he says that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have held, which we have touched, which we have handled of the word of life. And so God poured his life out into the earth. He bestowed his love upon us by manifesting his, his, his life inside of the flesh of Jesus, the Son of Man, when he raised Jesus from the dead, having inherited the kingdom of God inside of human flesh. He's trying to work innocence in us. He's trying to issue a testimony against the testimony that the death in the earth is trying to speak to us. He's coming to combat the word that comes from death. And he's coming with the word that's filled with an incorruptible life. Because he knows if we can be persuaded that we have an incorruptible life, that the Father has given us an incorruptible life, that he's given us a life that even overcomes death, that overcomes lack, that that life will dwell in us and create in us a blameless heart. And that life will start to rebuke the word in the world that tells us we're not as we ought to be every time we encounter lack. And we'll start to find something born in us. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the death is not lifted up in my heart, but the life that's come from the Father is lifted up in my heart. I lack nothing. 
That's justification. God sees the lack in the earth. He sees what it testifies in our hearts. He comes to give us a life that doesn't lack. So all of a sudden, our hearts begin to say, I lack nothing right in the face of seeing all lack. This will mess people up, but Psalm 23, I say this all the time. Psalm 23 is still Jesus on the cross. We all say Psalm 22 is Jesus on the cross. It's a prophetic psalm. Well, somehow we get to the end of Psalm 22 because we've added in chapters and verses, and we, it's like we think that's not Jesus anymore. Psalm 23 is still Jesus. The Father is my shepherd, I do not lack. When is he saying that? On the cross. What is the devil telling him while he's on the cross? Where's your God now? The Father is the shepherd and bishop of my soul. I do not lack. Yea, though I walk through a valley shadowed by death, I see the Father with me preparing a table of life right here in my midst. Mm. So God stores up himself as an inheritance for us. He stores up himself because he knows that in him is the life that our hearts long for, an incorruptible life. That's the eternity that's in the hearts of mankind. It's the desire for an incorruptible life. Well, the Father's the only one who has an incorruptible life. So God stores up for us in himself an inheritance. And what he does is he de declares through the gospel that we have an inheritance stored up for us in him. And we partake of his life. We partake of him. We partake of our inheritance, which is God himself by the faith that came in Jesus. That's how we partake of our inheritance. We believe on the faith that came in Jesus. God sent the faith that is filled with his life so that we could inherit him. You've inherited God. If you believed on Jesus, God, you've inherited God. Listen, I promise you, when you wrap your head around what it means that you've inherited God, you ain't worried about what's going on around you in the world. And I promise you, if you saw God there with you in your midst, you wouldn't be worried about what's going on in the world either. Mm. We partake of his life. We partake of him. We partake of our inheritance, which is God himself through the faith that came in Jesus. And what happens then is God's indestructible life abides in us. It dwells inside of us. It keeps us. It abides through the Holy Spirit. And what it does is it keeps our hearts blameless from the accusation that comes from the death and the lack that's in the earth. The voice of accusation no longer has anything in us because death no longer has anything in us. The serpent's bite no longer has anything in us. The reason it no longer has anything in us is because God has come and justified us with his life by clothing us with the life of his lamb. So how can the serpent point at the death and tell me the death is a sign I'm separated from life when I see the Father has came and given me his life, a life that overcomes death? How can you tell me I lack what I need to have life when I have the Father's life, which overcomes lack? So go ahead and point at the death and tell me that's a sign that God's not with me. Tell me it's a sign that I'm separated from what I need to have life. I see a different sign. I see the sign of the resurrection. I see the sign of a life manifested in human flesh that overcomes death. And I see that he has bestowed that life on me as a gift. And that life abides in my heart and it starts created in me a blameless heart that every time the lack in the world starts yelling at me, where's your God now? Are you really his child? 
I find that voice is dead to me because there's a different voice. It's the voice of the Father's life dwelling in me, telling me, I'm your shepherd. You have all things. Why do you think the psalmist, which is the, the picture of the spirit of the son, why do you think the psalmist says, you maketh me to lie down in tender green grass? You see what the death of the cross was trying to do to Jesus? Take up your own life. Come down off the cross. Where's your God now? Jesus says, I see the Father preparing a table for me, a table full of life. I see that my life has come from above, that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. That maketh me to lie down in the tender green grass. Jesus says in John's gospel that now is the time, now is the hour where the devil, the prince of this world will come to me, but he won't have anything in me. Why didn't he have anything in Jesus? Well, because Jesus' life didn't come from the world. So even should his life die in the world, that wouldn't be the snuffing out of his life because the father's life was in him and that life would raise him up out of the grave. Hallelujah. <clears throat> it's the life of God that works innocence in our hearts. It's possessing the Father's life. It's being persuaded of what it means that you possess an incorruptible life that defends your heart, that works innocence in your heart. It's the life of God that works in our hearts to acquit us of the accusation that tries to come to us through the death and the lack and the tribulation in the world. It's His life, God's life, given to us as a gift that keeps our hearts blameless in the day of temptation. The day of temptation is not when the serpent is tempting you to go drink too many beers. You've already been tempted after that place. The day of temptation is the day where the serpent comes and points at your life and convinces you you lack something you need. That's the day of temptation. Because if you think you lack something you need, you're going to enlist your own strength to try to gather to yourself what you need. Well, if you believe you have a life that doesn't lack, then how can the serpent convince you lack what you need? He can't. The only thing, we all want to believe that we are as we ought to be. None of us like it when we feel like we're not as we ought to be. None of us like it. We've all felt that weight. The only thing that can persuade us that we are as we ought to be is possessing the Father's indestructible life and knowing what it means that we possess His life. That life dwelling in us will convince us the eternity that was in our hearts, we have. The eternity that's in our hearts, we have. What's that Jerry Maguire movie? You complete me. Right? They play that nice music. We get so emotional about that. You ever wonder why we get so emotional about that? You ever wonder why our hearts even connect to this idea that another person can complete us? Where, do we, where does that even come from? I mean, I tell women all the time, guys, I'm so sorry, but man, we are not their Prince Charming. And ladies have been put in this crazy place where they think they're going to find some man that's their Prince Charming. And then what it does is it breaks down the marriage for the man and the woman. Because the man cannot completely you. You know why? He's not God. And the woman cannot complete the man. And if they're both looking to each other to feel complete, what do you think they feel about the other one every time they feel lack? 
they think it's the other one's fault. There is a Prince Charming, that's where we get the fairy tale from. But the Prince Charming is God. He's the only one that can complete you. And the way he completes you is he gives you the life that's the eternity that was in your heart. And when you become persuaded that you have that eternity that was in your heart, that's when you're persuaded that you are as you ought to be. And nothing can take away from it and nothing can add it. And that's when men and women, husbands and wives, can start enjoying life with each other instead of trying to suck life out of one another. Like our dear brother Jim says from Mississippi, it's like two ticks and no dog. The world has created marriage where you got two ticks trying to suck life out of each other. And then every time they can't get the eternity from one another, it may, you can't get eternity from another person. Every time we don't get it, then we find fault with them. And we blame them. We scapegoat them for the lack we feel. I hope that makes some sense. <clears throat> the, the justification that comes from God manifesting his life in the body of Jesus' resurrection, it does more than just declare our innocence. You know who else's innocence it declares? God. It declares other people innocent also. You're absolutely right. Those are the three. And you'll start enjoying life when people are, I counsel people, are you saying I should let them off the hook? Yep. Because you're scapegoating the wrong thing for your pain. No, they're not perfect. You're right. But you know what I realized? I used to judge everybody for all their imperfections and all their failures. And I thought I was so right to be upset with them for not doing things right. You know what God come and revealed to me that set me free from that? He said, Greg, you know the reason why you're really upset? You're upset that they are not God. How can I be upset with another person because they're not God? I'm trying to get things from them that I can only get from God. And then I'm blaming them when I can't get it from them. Now that is insanity. That, that, that will let people, you don't try to forgive people, you'll find your heart letting them off the hook. You're no longer keeping a record of the wrongs they committed against you because you realize they could never give you what you were after anyway. It isn't their fault they can't be God. God had to be declared innocent. He come to declare us innocent, but he had to come and declare himself innocent in our midst. And it sounds so strange to think that God had to be declared innocent or to think that God needed to be justified. You can even be like, how can that be? That's what the serpent wants. He doesn't want you to connect these things. But the serpent didn't just use death and tribulation in the earth to accuse us. He was also pointing at the death and the tribulation in the earth to accuse God to us. Satan knew, if I can blaspheme the name of God in their hearts, if I can defile God's goodness in their sight, that's going to keep them from giving themselves fully over into God's arms. You can't give yourself fully over into someone's arms if you think they can hurt you. Or if you think they lack in their ability to care for your life. Or you think they don't desire to care for your life. You ain't giving yourself over into their arms. It's impossible. And he knows that. And so he wants to defile the name of God in our hearts. And what he does is he, he comes to accuse God in our hearts. And the weapon he uses to level an accusation against God is the death and the tribulation we see. That's why you see atheists all the time pointing to the death in the world as the evidence God doesn't exist. 
So God needed to be acquitted in our sight. So we could trust him with our lives. If you look at Eve, this is the same dynamic that happened with Eve. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now I'm going to flip the script on this for you, because we've all been taught that he came questioning God's word. That's not exactly what he did there when you look at that in the Hebrew. I'm not going to argue with somebody to the death if they also want to believe that, but you don't want to believe that to the exclusion of what I'm about to tell you because it revealed the devices of the serpent. He wasn't just calling into question God's word. Hebrew scholars say that sentence, that phrase I just read, it's an expression of interrogative, interrogative expressing surprise expressing surprise and so the way they say that would be more accurately translated or thought about is that satan isn't questioning god's word to eve as much as he's questioning god's integrity towards eve's life he's calling into question the integrity in god's heart to care for her life he's calling into question is God as he ought to be as father. He's accusing God. Any of you ever struggled to trust God when you see things go wrong in your life? That's what he's doing with Eve. And so this is, this is what I'm going to paraphrase, but this is what it is more accurately described as, the serpent talking with Eve. Is God? This is the surprise that Hebrew scholars say is wrapped up in the phrase. Is God really keeping this tree from you? Is it true that he told you you can't eat from that true tree? In fact, he's coming and acknowledging that God did say that. And he's trying to use that to accuse God. So he's not saying God didn't say it. He's saying God did say. What kind of a father would hold something of himself back from his children? Can God really be the father you need? Can he really give your life the kind of care that it needs? Can you really trust him to provide you with everything you need to partake in life and godliness? Look at how he's keeping this tree from you. And look at this tree. The scripture says that the tree looked good for food. And it looked like it would be wise that if I ate from this tree, it would give me a good life. And so Satan comes and says, how can God be a good father when he's holding something back from you, when he's keeping you from this beautiful tree, this tree that's filled with life, this tree that's filled with wisdom? Satan was accusing God to Eve. He was calling into question God's integrity towards her life. He was calling into question God's ability to be the father that she needs because he knew if her heart could question whether God would take thought to care for her life, she would begin taking thought to care for her own life. She wouldn't be able to give herself over into God's arms. She would begin thinking, I can't trust this dude. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. You ever had that thought in your mind? I can't trust this dude. What goes down when you start thinking that? What, what whips into place? I got to protect myself. I got to take care of myself. That's exactly what went down in Eve. And it was all because the serpent convinced Eve that God lacked something that he needed to be a good father. He wasn't a good father. 
Now, I, I explained all that, and we'll finish with this, this last part. And thank you, guys. You guys that are new, you, you haven't been put through the training course. What I mean by that is I'm filled with much speaking. <laughs> and so maybe you come from a place where they speak a lot, but I can preach for a long time. So I'm letting you know so your rear ends can, can know that relief is coming soon. Um, <laughs> God will even save the pain that comes upon our rear ends from preachers that talk long. <laughs> just as the serpent accused god to eve by pointing at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's what the death and the lack in the earth tries to do to us it gives a testimony against the integrity in god's heart towards our lives it tries to testify against god's ability to be the father that we need because he knows we got eternity in our hearts he knows we long for an incorruptible life and he's trying to get us to judge god's integrity towards us by the life we see in the world instead of by the life we see manifested in the resurrected jesus because he knows if we uh if we judge god by the life we see in the world which is the life he fathered not god that our hearts will never be able to trust god and our hearts will start accusing god how could you do this how could you let this happen why weren't you there for me is it just me that says those things? I'm reading everybody's mail, man. This is what a real word of knowledge looks like. Yes, you can get a word of knowledge about a business, a relationship, but rather a word of knowledge is what God gave us in Jesus, where he comes and discerns our hearts for us, and we start to understand the things we felt, why we felt them, and then we start to see how he delivers us from that and what he's done to be our advocate. So Satan got it right to produce his death and the fruit of his death in us and in the earth. And then what he did was he used that death as the voice of accusation against God. The serpent's the one that come and infected the earth with death. He used Adam to affect the earth with death. And then what he does is he, that death he infected the earth with, it gives a testimony in the earth that God isn't as he ought to be his father. He's not as he ought to be as the one that clothes us with life because look at the death everywhere. It tells us God isn't as he ought to be. The tribulation in the earth serves as the voice of accusation against God. It serves as the accuser asking us, where's your God now? Is he really the father that you need? Is he really taking thought to give your life the kind of care that it needs? Where is he now? Let him come for you if he will have you. The reason Jesus heard all those things is because that's what every human has heard when they see death. And God was trying to blow up the lie that the death was a sign that he wasn't there. And the way that he blows it up is we see Jesus, we see death come upon him. We all conclude that God has abandoned him. And then God shows up and pulls him out of the grave. Manifesting a life that overcomes death inside of him. You want to know what kind of father you need? You need the kind of father that can give you a life that overcomes death. That's the kind of father you need. We all have our kids. Guys, kids will throw a temper tantrum when they think they need something that you won't give them. Now, who knows what they need? You or them. Well, we, just like little children, can throw a temper tantrum when we think God hasn't given us what we need. But he knows what we need, not us. And we need a life that overcomes this world. And the things in this world cannot give us that kind of a life. The only thing that can give us that kind of a life is for him to pour out of himself the spirit of a life that overcomes death in the flesh. 
So he manifested that life, the life, the eternity that's in our hearts when he raised Jesus from the dead. And now we see the life that he served us with as a gift in the resurrection of Jesus. And that starts giving a different testimony in the earth. It starts telling us that God is as he ought to be his father. He is as he ought to be as the one who clothes with life. He is as, as he ought to be as the one who takes thought to care for our lives. And our hearts cry out, Abba! We begin to know him as father. Hmm. Anytime we see a father that doesn't take care of their kids, what does the world say? It's a cliche. Deadbeat dad. Do you know what the death and tribulation of the earth is trying to tell us all the time? God's a deadbeat dad. He's an absentee father. Where is he? He must not. That's what the death in the world tells us. He must not have a desire to care for our lives. Either that or he must not have the ability. Either way, that conclusion leads us to the place where we say God isn't as he ought to be as the one who will father our lives. You know what happens then? You try to father your own life. You know what happens when you try to father your own life? Destruction. <laughs> Jesus prays in John 17. It's a famous prayer. Father, glorify me that... I may glorify you. You see how Jesus is acknowledging that God needs to be glorified in the sight of human beings? He even begins that chapter by saying that he has authority over all flesh. Glorify me, and in that I'm a human being, that will glorify you in the sight of all the other human beings. They'll begin to see that you are as you ought to be as Father. When he says glorify me, Jesus is praying. I'm going to fill in the blanks for us guys. Raise me as the son of man from the dead. Glorify my flesh with your immortality and that will justify you in the sight of mankind. It will declare your innocence. It will show once and for all that you are as you ought to be as the father of mankind. It will acquit you in the eyes of mankind and they will see you are as you ought to be as the one who cares for their lives. When they see the thought you have taken to care for their lives in the resurrection of Jesus, that it's exceedingly abundantly above all they could ever ask or think, you will be sanctified in their heart as Father. And they'll begin calling you Father, which is what Jesus says with the power unto eternal life. For you to see that God is as He ought to be His Father. What, is the, what does it mean to be the Father that we need? It means you got to have a life that overcomes this world. Well, we see he gave us a life that overcomes the world because we watched it overcome the world inside of Jesus. And now that life has been poured out on us through the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's the spirit that cries out, Abba, it says. We have been given the spirit of adoption, whereby it shows us God is our good father. Look at the life he gave me, a life that swallows lack. Hallelujah. Right? So the body of Jesus' resurrection, what we see there, what do we see in the body of Jesus' resurrection? You know what we see? We see a life that is without spot or blemish. You know what you want? A life that is without spot or blemish. Do you know what your heart knows is right? For you to have a life that's without spot or blemish. You know what your heart thinks is wrong? For you to have a life that has spots and blemishes in it. And now we see Jesus... We see a life in him that's without spot or blemish. 
when he's raised from the dead. We see a sinless life that can give our lives the kind of care we need. We see his resurrection and we see that's a life with no sin. That's a life with no death. That's a life with no lack. That's the kind of life that my heart says is right. That's the kind of life that my heart says is the life I need to care for me. Then we see the Father has given us that life as a gift. And it acquits him in our hearts. It declares the innocence of God in our hearts. Do you, you ever seen a court case where one attorney will stand up and object to what the, attorney said, the other attorney says? Man, what happens is the life that we see manifested in Jesus' resurrection, it begins to object to the testimony that death is giving in the earth about God. It stands up in our hearts and it objects to the voice of accusation. It rebukes the voice of accusation. It, it starts testifying in our hearts, God is the Father that we need. We see the glorified Jesus and we see the Father in our midst serving us with the life that is free from sin, that can never die again, that has already overcome the world and the lack in the world. And that gives a testimony that God is as he ought to be as Father. That's the justification of life. And that's why it's more accurate to say the justification that comes from life. In God giving his life, it produces a justification. It works in our innocence in our hearts, and it works God's innocence in our hearts. Then we begin walking all our days in the earth being persuaded of sonship, persuaded of daughterhood, persuaded that God is the father we need. We all talk about identity. If we could just believe we were the sons and daughters of God. Jesus really knew, we said. Well, those things are true, but what caused him to really know? And what tried to work against him knowing? Right? Glory to God. Thank you guys so much for your time. Father, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you haven't left us to discern our own hearts. You haven't left us to try to figure out our lives, to try to make sense over the things we see in the world. I thank you, Father, that you've drawn near to us in Jesus and you discerned our hearts for us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you've poured out of yourself your life and that your life is dwelling inside of us. Thank you, Lord, that your life begins rebuking the voice of accusation in the world. Thank you, Lord, that everybody that hears this message finds your life manifesting in them, rebuking the testimony that the death in the earth is trying to give them. Thank you, Father, that your life is in the earth, declaring that you are as you ought to be as Father. Thank you, Lord, that we can walk in this earth by the power that comes from knowing you as Father, that we can find our lives shaped by knowing you as Father instead of thinking that you aren't as you ought to be. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for your time.